Geordie. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Our guest this episode is the founder of the Anne Frank Trust and has just published a book, The Legacy of Anne Frank, about the incredible legacy left by Anne and her famous diary, written when hiding from the Nazis in occupied Amsterdam. Gillian Warnes Perry has travelled all over the world, spreading Anne's message to help combat prejudice, was once chased by the KGB for her human rights work in Russia, and now has the cushiest job in the world, giving lectures on luxury cruise ships across the globe. Please welcome the fascinating Gillian Warnes Perry. Shall we start with Anne Frank, because you founded the Anne Frank Trust in 1990. What was your interest in Anne and what was the aim behind founding the Trust? Well, it was all sort of serendipity because I've been very involved in the human rights campaign for people trapped in Russia. And because we had uh, President Gorbachev had come into power in the mid-80s and he was actually decreasing oppression, letting people out, I found myself a little bit redundant with uh, two small children at home and uh, it's been a very successful campaign. And it was just at that moment that um, I received a call from my very good friend and local rabbi, David Suttendorp, whose father had actually been a friend of Otto Frank in Amsterdam. And he said to me, I've heard about this travelling exhibition that's just come to the UK. I'd love to bring it to our town in Bournemouth. Would you help me? And I said, oh, that sounds a bit tempting. And so I said, yes. And we set up a committee. And nine months later, this incredible exhibition came. I mean, nowadays it looks really old fashioned, but it was staged at the university, a little bit out of town. And in three weeks, we had 10,000 visitors. I thought, oh, my goodness, I want to stay involved. So I had the chutzpah to actually take myself on a plane to Amsterdam and go and meet the director of the Anne Frank House, who had created the exhibition. And I said, I really think this tour should continue. Would you like someone to act as your British representative of the Anne Frank House? I mean, I'd always loved Anne Frank, I'd always been interested in her. For my sins, he said yes. And then in 1990, we founded the Anne Frank Trust. The rest is history, as they say. It grew into a very successful educational organisation. And when I left two and a half years ago, it had over 30 paid staff working in some really challenging areas of the UK. So I'm very proud of all the achievements of the people that come on board with the Trust over those years and helped it to grow and flourish. And what sort of work do you actually do with the Trust or does the Trust do? We take exhibitions and programmes about Anne Frank into schools, into prisons and into communities. And they are some of the toughest, most divisive and economically challenged communities in the UK. And we actually train, for example, if it's in a school, we train the young people themselves to be our exhibition guide. So it's peer-to-peer education, which we have found to be the most effective. Young people really respond to things more if it's being delivered by one of their own rather than, say, their history teacher. And also because these programmes are done in really quite challenged areas where sometimes there are young people who have very low aspiration and ambition and hope for their own lives. The responsibility that we've given these kids to be our educators and, and educate others about another teenager, one of their own peers, gives them sort of confidence and feeling of responsibility and a feeling that I've been given the task by the Anne Frank Trust to do this. I'm an Anne Frank exhibition guide and then they can go on for further training, become Anne Frank ambassadors, go into their local community and bring, uh, when we take a, an exhibition into a community, a large public exhibition, 
they are the guides, they take the public around. Same with the prisons. We train the prisoners to be the ed educators. And also we take Holocaust survivors into prisons to talk to the prisoners. And, you know, when they hear an elderly gentleman or lady with a middle European accent standing in front of them say, well, I was in prison too, you know, and they describe why they were in prison and what happened to them. It gives prisoners a, a sense of perspective about their own grievances against society. It's been it's an incredible project. And the Holocaust survivors, and of course they're getting fewer and fewer, absolutely love to do this. And then we have national education days like Anne Frank Day in June that marks her birthday. We have national campaigns. We currently have one about online bullying. It's quite wide-ranging, the work. It's quite effective. But essentially, we are using the experiences of a persecuted teenager in the Holocaust who wrote about what it feels like to be a teenager that is in danger of her life and all the things that she wants to do, how she wants to make the world better. While she's in hiding over two years, she develops a real moral code and that comes out in the diary so much so that when her father, who was the only one of the eight people in hiding in Amsterdam to survive the Holocaust, when he read her diary, he realised he never knew his teenage daughter. And how many of us do know our teenagers, know their inner depths? So it really touches people on a very basic level. What do you think it is about Anne that appeals to people that has made her diary one of many stories that came out of the, the war, given it such longevity? For me personally, I played Anne Frank in a play in the theatre when I was young, and I had a, an immense affinity. And I think maybe because you're the, the youth and the problems that she's experiencing mm. and young people can relate to that and she's ex experiencing them all locked in one tiny small area with her parents with another family and watching the world go to hell outside mm. the window mm. and this is why I mean for example when we talk about the great wars the great genocides and we talk in numbers it's numbers but when you can personalize it and and crystallize it down to one person's experience, or even the experience of that family that are trapped. Anne Frank was born to a family that were aspirational, they were culturalized into German society, Anne's grandfather had actually owned a bank in Frankfurt. She had a, a, a charmed childhood until 1933, when she was four years old and Hitler came to power. And then the family had to flee. I mean, her father Otto Frank was a seventh generation German Jew from Frankfurt. They had to leave everything behind and go to somewhere where they considered a safe haven, which was Amsterdam. So they had to rebuild their lives. And that's something that's got great resonance to people today. There's so many people have had to build, rebuild their lives from other places, as well as the fact that she writes down, she shares with us what it actually feels like to be the victim of irrational persecution. And you're going through that at the same time, you're going through the transition into being an adolescent. Her father was a very keen amateur photographer and he had a lovely Leica in the 1920s. And he took a lot of photographs of his two beautiful daughters, gave him great pleasure. And so we have this incredible archive because those photographs were sent before they went into hiding. They were sent to family in Switzerland and subsequently other photos actually turned up. And so we have this incredible resource that we can not only see what this little girl looked like literally from the, she was a few days old growing up until she was 13, but also you get into her innermost thoughts and it really, it touches teenagers because they identify with the things she's going through but also touches adults because 
their, their sense of how can I protect my children. One of the aims of the Anne Frank Trust is to help help combat, if we may, prejudice. Do you think mm. it has that effect? Can you see that happening? We live in a, a strange world at the moment with the far right on the rise in many parts of the world and some very extreme thinking becoming more popular. Mm. Do you think that you can do that? You can encourage less prejudice? That's what we try to do. But because we're talking about the story of a teenager, we don't do it in a preachy way. And because of that story, there's a distance of over 70 years. We don't say, now look, you should do this and this is how you should live your lives. But it's subliminal. When you learn the story of Anne Frank, you kind of want to protect her and you want to, uh, children make a pledge that they want to make the world better and to, to carry on the things that she wanted to do. She wanted, she never let go of her ideals, even towards the very end of her writing. She's saying, she's battling, but she's saying, despite everything, I must hold on to my ideals, but perhaps the day will come when I'll be able to realise them. And what we're doing is we're saying to young people, well, it's up to you. We're saying to prisoners, it's up to you. Uh, you can help this little girl that was not allowed to live simply because she was born Jewish and considered subhuman by the Nazi ideology. Uh, it's, it's up to you to carry on those ideals. They get it. So Amsterdam seems like a very good place to start our travels. I know you are incredibly well travelled. I don't know how we're going to fit it all in. But <laughs> one of my favourite museums in Amsterdam, as well as the Anne Frank House, is the Museum of the Resistance. Yes. Talking about archives, that yes. is a wonderful place of archives and yes. photos. And obviously, wonderful might not be the right word. Very humbling, very distressing in, yes. in many ways. But yeah. a lot of admiration for the people who were living underground and working underground. And, and trying their hardest to to battle, you know, with extreme forces. Uh, what's your experience of Amsterdam? I've been travelling to Amsterdam for 30 years. One of the very first times I went, when I was starting out on the journey with the Anne Frank Trust, I stayed in a hotel which was a few steps away from the Anne Frank House. Now, just around the corner from the Anne Frank House is this beautiful 17th century church called the Vesterkirk. And it was the bells of the clock chiming of the Westerkirk every quarter of an hour that reminded Anne of the world, the outside world. So it meant a lot to her. It gave her comfort to hear those bells. And as I was in my hotel, I could hear those very same chimes that Anne Frank had listened to and had given her so much comfort. There are many places around Amsterdam that resonate with Anne's experience. Uh, just south of the city is the Maveda Plain. And the Maveda Plain is where the apartment was that the Frank family lived before they were forced to flee into hiding. And it was home to a substantial number of German and Austrian refugees. Uh, at the time, it was a very modern building. Now it looks very dated into the very 1920s. But it was built around a triangular grass square. And that's where the children used to go out and play. And that's where Anne formed a lot of her best friendships. Just around the corner from the Maveda Plain, you can actually still see a bookshop, one of Amsterdam's largest and most uh, well-known bookshops. And that's where, a couple of days before her 13th birthday, Anne and her father were walking back to their apartment. She just so happened to spot a red check notebook in the window. What probably attracted her was the fact they had a lock. And what 13-year-old girl doesn't want a lock on their diary? She could actually confide things in it without her parents being able to see it. And she kind of dropped a hint to her dad, like, you know, kids do when it's coming up to Christmas or their birthdays about the new Xbox or the new trainers and said, oh, you know, dad, I really love that. He went back, Otto Frank went back and bought the diary and presented it to Anne on her birthday, which was a great surprise. And she started writing immediately. And 
course, those first entries were about gossipy things about she gossiped about virtually everyone in her class <laughs> there was a boy as well that she had a crush yes, on, wasn't there? yes there, there was a boy called peter and who sadly died in in auschwitz and actually she was she was a flirt and she actually thought the boys all loved her and she went through the failings of every member of her class but then of course as the dowry progresses when they're in hiding of course her, her it becomes much deeper. So there are many places to go, apart, of course, from the Dutch Resistance Museum, which is wonderful, in Amsterdam that do have connections to Anne Frank. I've never been to the place that she was in before the attic, and that's uh, I'd love to. I'd, I will add that to my list of places it's to go. It's very interesting because the apartment itself, number 37, is now a refuge for writers seeking asylum, oppressed writers from around the world that are seeking asylum in Amsterdam. It's been bought recently by the Anne Frank House, and they've kept the furniture pretty much as it was in the 1930s and writers for a period of about six months go and stay there it's a fascinating place that sounds like a wonderful yes. idea as well um, so before we got on to Anne you mentioned casually that you were in Russia and I have word secret words that you were, it was something to do with the KGB while you were there tell me about your time in <laughs> Russia with the KGB well, it, it, well I didn't laugh at the time I was the chairman of a, a human rights group in the 1980s the Jews were had discovered, rediscovered their identity and were trying to get out of the Soviet Union because they weren't allowed to practice their religion. And so there were very active groups of people actually around the world, around the free world, that supported them and helped them and would actually go fairly regularly to give them moral support but also take them vital goods because once they'd applied to emigrate, they lost their jobs and they had no means of, of state support because they were considered persona non grata. They were like stateless people. They, they weren't allowed the exit visa but they were no longer Russian citizens, Soviet citizens, so weren't allowed to work. Their, their lives were very precarious. Many got sent away to on trumped-up charges of spying, espionage, and sent away to labour camps. And groups of us used to go and visit. I first went in 1986, and it was actually when we were visiting Vilnius in Lithuania that our group of four people, including a journalist, were followed around and uh, called in for questioning by the KGB and told that if we weren't, didn't stop visiting these people, then we would be on the next plane out. Well, we knew there wasn't a plane leaving until the day that we were due to leave, so we just carried on sort of clandestinely visiting people. Surprisingly, I was actually invited in 1990. Uh, the Anne Frank exhibition was one of the first big cultural programmes from the West that was invited to the new Moscow as, as the Soviet Union was falling apart. And I was invited by the director of the Anne Frank House to go and join them. And I got the visa. I was so excited. Got to Heathrow Airport. I went to check in and was met with a firm yet. So even as late as 1990, I was still on the Russian computers as a person, as an agitator who would, was, I was literally, I was a housewife from Dorset, actually, <laughs> with two young children. Um, but we were a very active group. That was just a cover, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have you tried to get in since to Russia? Funny you should say that, Lisa, because I was actually there for the first time in July, lecturing on a cruise. And my husband and I were in St. Petersburg. And it was fortuitous timing, actually, because we were the, the ship was moored at, on the mouth of the River Neva in St. Petersburg, directly opposite the FIFA stadium. And we sat on the deck of the ship watching on a huge screen the England-Belgium playoff and looked across the River Neva, and there was the actual, the match. Amazing. Um, Could you it, hear the cheers and everything? Totally. But, uh, my goodness, that place had changed. I mean, it was very oppressive. There were actually, when you stayed in the hotels, 
in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, there was a KGB office on every floor, keeping an eye on, on people from the West. You were not allowed to mingle with people, uh, the Soviet people, at the airports. We were directed in different areas. We were followed around the streets. It was a very oppressive place to be, but we knew that we were coming home and we were leaving people behind that weren't. Yes. You were the lucky ones. Yes. You've mentioned there your cruise ships, and you seem to have this very charmed life now where you've travelled extensively, speaking in Hong Kong, Argentina, South Africa, Brazil, and, and many more by the sounds of it. And now you travel, you, you lecture around the world, but cruise ships have a significant part of this, which <laughs> yes. sounds like an ideal job. Tell me about your cruise ship <laughs> lecturing. I used to cruise a lot, actually, because it's always such a lovely thing just to unpack once and be taken everywhere. So when I retired, I put myself forward to a couple of the cruise line companies just to test the water. And sure enough, I was called down to Southampton to Carnival House by P&O to audition. And at the end of the audition, the person who seemed to be in charge, Anna, she said to me, how did you get involved with this? And uh, I told her the whole story about the exhibition coming to Bournemouth. And she looked at me, she said, Gillian, she said, I was a nine-year-old girl. I was staying with my grandparents in Bournemouth and they took me to see the Anne Frank exhibition in Bournemouth and I've never forgotten it. They said, well, you weren't here for us but for two weeks and we'll let you know if you, you're on our books. And sure enough, two weeks, exactly two weeks later, I got an email saying, Gillian, could you do a cruise from Honolulu sailing across the Pacific to San Francisco? I said, yes, I think I'm available. And that was wonderful. And so that's where I started my cruise ship career. It was a long flight from London directly to Honolulu. But while I was there, I made the most of it. And it just so happens that the sister of President Obama happens to be a professor at the University of Honolulu. And we arranged to meet up. I told all about the Anne Frank exhibition. And sure enough, in December last year, the Anne Frank exhibition made its first ever visit to Honolulu, to Hawaii. And I'm just off the end of this week, two weeks in the Caribbean. I lecture not only about Anne Frank, although Anne Frank is highly popular. I talk about Anne's life and her legacy. But I also create lectures for particular destinations. So I'm doing a series of lectures on the relationship between Britain and the Caribbean. And when I'm in, for example, Northern Europe, I do a series of lectures about fascinating lives from the Northern European royal families, which there's some fascinating stories, quite gossipy stories from the Scandinavian royal families as well. I found out most of my royal family history, apart from at school, um, from the Who Do You Think You Are with Boris Johnson, because he turned out to be related <laughs> to every single royal family. Yes, uh, and they in are all Europe. interrelated. Well, actually. that's it. They were, and our royal family are related to them, aren't they? Exactly, to through and, and Queen Victoria, the descendants of, of Queen Victoria and King Christian of Denmark. They're all sort of interrelated. I also do lectures not only on ships but all around the UK. Very popular lecture on the social history of English afternoon tea. Well, I was going to get onto that because it's on my <laughs> list. But first of all, a couple of things I wanted to say. One was I had no, I've never been on a cruise. I'm saving that. I do yes. want to go on a cruise. And even my travels have been extensive. So I need to, you know, sort of organise that for maybe for a later date. In fact, now the kids are getting a bit bigger. I do really yes. fancy a cruise. I had no idea. I Obviously, everyone knows that there's a lot of entertainment on the cruise. I had no idea there were serious interesting lectures like yes. the, the type you're talking about yes yes absolutely my husband lectures too on the middle east so 
we're off on a Middle East cruise in sailing from Amman round um, to Jordan and, and through the Suez Canal. He lectures on the Suez Canal as well. So I have to say that's in, in, attracted me more to cruises, knowing that actually I could go to, you know, go to something interesting and learn something while I was there. Oh, absolutely. And there are classes as well. There's art classes, bridge classes. And if, if you, when your kid's a little bit older, there'll be loads of activities on the ships for, for the cruises. You mentioned Barack Obama's sister. I know you've also been involved with a lot of very well-known people as part of your work. Um, my research would indicate that Nelson Mandela, Kofi Annan, Steven Spielberg, Audrey Hepburn, Angelina Jolie and lots of other people have you have crossed paths with tell me about some of those encounters well can i read from the book about nelson mandela yes absolutely yes okay please. okay since my retirement i was working on a book on the legacy of anne frank and there have been lots of books written about anne and also about her diary but i believe this is the first that has ever chronicled the amazing work educational work that has been done in her memory around the world over the last 30 years. That's because of the traveling exhibitions that have been created by the Anne Frank House. And they have taken these exhibitions to some really surprising places, some of the most turbulent and seismic arenas of the world over the last 30 years. So in a way, the book is about Anne Frank and her impact, learning about Anne Frank, but also it's a sort of potted history of 30 years of world history, the most recent 30 years, and where Anne has fitted in and, and woven her magical thread. So, for example, it covers post-communist Europe, how she brought people together in post-apartheid South Africa, post-dictatorship Latin America, South America, some of those awful dictatorships in Argentina and Chile. Even fairly recently, post-Civil War Sri Lanka, how in India, young people have sort of looked at the iniquities of the caste system through the lens of, of the Anne Frank exhibition and all the projects around that. And it's an unusual book. And also it does mention many of the, the people that I've been very fortunate to meet, including Meep Hees, who was the helper, the heroic helper of the Frank family and actually rescued the diary when the families were taken away. I remember, was it Meep who used to come up with the food? She was actually one of Otto Frank's office managers, work workers. And it wasn't just Meep, it was other three other of his staff that were crucial because you couldn't hide eight people for over two years without help. And so these were the incredibly brave people who at huge risk to themselves for over two years, provided the, the families in hiding with food, medicines when necessary, and, you know, having to feed their own families as well. And in the case of, case of Meep and her husband, who was in the resistance, they were actually hiding a young Dutch boy who refused to join the Nazi party in their own home for some of that time. And so she broke the lock when the families were, read, were arrested, believing that because, you know, the Allies were advancing, that maybe Anne would come back soon. And it was her private diary. So Meep never read the diary. But when Otto eventually returned to Amsterdam after his liberation, and when it, the deaths of his two daughters were confirmed by the Red Cross, she went to her desk drawer, got out the little red check notebook and said, here you are, Mr. Frank. Here is the legacy of your daughter. Oh, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So... Nelson Mandela I would like yes. to speak about because I actually was fortunate enough to be sent down to South Africa, arriving five days after the first democratic election in 1994. And it was a euphoric time to be in South Africa. I was sent to open the Anne Frank exhibition in Port Elizabeth. 
I opened the exhibition with Mr. Government Becky, who had spent 18 years in hiding with Nelson Mandela. So I'm just going to read. In the 1960s, while kept in Robben Island prison, Nelson Mandela has set up what he has described in his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, as the Robben Island University, a learning forum for the prisoners to be well equipped to continue the struggle for democracy on their long-awaited release. Spearheaded by Mr Mandela, the university allowed prisoners to lecture on their respective areas of expertise and debate wide-ranging topics including homosexuality and Marxism. In a barren limestone quarry on a secluded island, lectures and animated discussions were carried out during the short periods of rest. Despite the attentions of the warders who guarded the imprisoned men and oversaw their long days of labouring in the quarry, one of the books they read and discussed had been Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl, somehow found its way into the collection of books in the small prison library. Mandela had encouraged the prisoners to read her writing as a testament to the strength of the human spirit. After several years, the little paperback book had been passed around and thumbed so much that its pages fell out and it became an incoherent and incomplete collection of papers. But the prisoners, avid for the message of hope for a better future that Anne envisioned, took turns to clandestinely copy out the pages by hand and collate them back together so that the younger prisoners could continue to draw strength from Anne's words. This was actually a dangerous act performed secretly by candlelight in the various cells at night. What happened to this volume we don't know, but it's one of the most remarkable examples of the place in history of Anne's diary. I had been told this story myself by South African anti-apartheid hero Govan Mbeki. A co-defendant at the notorious Rivonia trial, Mr Mbeki had spent 24 years, 18 of them along with Mr Mandela, as a political prisoner on Robin Island. Mr Mbeki and I, along with courageous and long-standing anti-apartheid politician Helen Suzman, were together as speakers at the opening of the exhibition in the city of Port Elizabeth, which was actually taking place just a few days after the first ever democratic election in the country. Mr Mbeki, by then 84 years old, with a shock of white hair and stooping from his years of hard labour, summoned me aside as I showed him around the Anne Frank exhibition and quietly told me the story about Anne's diary on Robin Island. Mbeki died in 2001 and lived long enough to see his own son Tabo succeed Nelson Mandela as the second president of a democratic South Africa. In 2008, I took the ferry boat across Cape Town Harbour to Robben Island, where former political prisoners from those terrible years act as guides for visitors. Looking into the small cell where Mandela had spent so many years of his remarkable life, I imagined Anne's diary secreted in a place only he would know where, emboldening him with the belief that things could one day change. Well, that's lovely, really lovely. Did you meet Nelson Mandela? Sadly not. He did sign the Anne Frank Declaration, which was created on my sofa in 1998, so he did choose to sign it. So I still have his signature. Actually. That's incredible. Amazing story. I've had a little look through the book and it looks brilliant. And I know you've got some wonderful stories about travelling around the UK, taking the Anne Frank exhibition. Do you have any standout memories from those days? Yes, I, I travelled non-stop because I'd go and set up meetings and meet all the relevant people, people that could fund it, the educators, volunteers, etc., to sort of motivate them to, this was going to be a great community project for them. And then, of course, I'd go back to open the exhibition and speak at the opening. Very often we'd have a Holocaust survivor with us, a wonderful speaker. I'd like to read something about the travels. I always maintained that the further away from London the Anne Frank exhibition was held, the more appreciated it was by the local community. The smaller the town, the bigger the event became. 
In these towns, there was a real buzz about the event, and you'd see posters of Anne Frank everywhere, including at bus stops, displays of Anne's diary in bookshop windows, and even overhear people talking about it on the streets and in cafes. And I heard some astonishing stories of connections to the Anne Frank family in the most unexpected places. At St Edmundsbury Cathedral in the rural east of England country town of Bury St Edmunds, I was introduced to an elderly local woman called Julia Donovan. Julia had grown up in the Netherlands but married an Englishman after the Second World War. Her profession as a young woman in wartime Amsterdam happened to be a midwife. It was Julia who delivered the baby sister of Anne Frank's best friend Hannah Gosler, the same friend whom Anne would encounter again in Bergen-Belsen. Julia was looking after mother and baby when the Frank family had come to visit the new arrival. There, among the stone pillars of an English country cathedral, the 90-year-old Mrs Donovan described to me her memories of young Anne, as she recalled a vivid, smiling and friendly little girl with very dark hair and eyes. With a twinkle in her eye, the elderly lady also divulged her dangerous nighttime activities in the Dutch resistance one of which was throwing the bicycles of Nazi soldiers into the canals. That's so. incredible, amazing story. And meeting Anne, you know, those first-hand stories are amazing. I must very quickly, before we end, ask you about afternoon tea because you lecture on the social history of English afternoon tea. And right now I'm feeling terribly embarrassed that as a great lover of, of afternoon tea, I don't actually know the social history of it. My first degree was in social history and history of design, so I, I should know this stuff. Please educate me so I can tell all my friends and educate them because I love afternoon tea. Everyone loves afternoon we tea. We do indeed. Well, I had the great privilege this summer during afternoon tea week of being invited by Woburn Abbey in Bedfordshire to give three lectures over three consecutive days. And of course, Woburn Abbey, Lisa, is the home of afternoon tea and it was the Duchess of Bedford in 1840 who at the time dinner was fashionably late and Anna Russell the Duchess of Bedford started to get hunger pangs in the middle of the afternoon and one day when her cup of tea because tea had became popular in England in the 1660s because Catherine Bragranza had brought over a chest of tea as her dowry and so her the servants were bringing her tray with her pot of tea and her afternoon tea she asked one of her servants could they kindly bring her just something to eat with the cup of tea? So even the historians at Bedford Abbey are not quite sure what was on that tray. It might have been some bread and butter or some little cakes, but she quite enjoyed this and it kept her going till dinner. So she started doing it regularly. Then she started inviting her friends to join her. Just so happened that the Duchess of Bedford was a great friend of Queen Victoria. So she mentioned it to her friend, the Queen, and she brought it into court. And so through the 19th century, it became very popular, particularly for women, an excuse for, to invite their friends and, and have a gossip, you know, where their husbands were out at work. There were even risque connotations, actually, because the tea gown was a very loose-fitting gown worn by ladies in the late 19th century. And because there were no corsets worn under this flowing gowns, you didn't have to have your servants in your room to do up your corsets. So it became synonymous, the tea gown became synonymous with entertaining your lovers in the afternoon without your nosy servants around. But also public tea rooms started around the sort of mid late 19th century. And this became a place where women felt comfortable going to have a meal without having to have their husbands with them. And they say that by the late 19th century, this was where the birth of, of independence for women and the birth of women's emancipation really started in, in tea rooms. And I remember even as a child, my mother and grandmother taking about for very special tea for tea rooms 
always wore their hats. And of course, nowadays, tea is enjoying afternoon tea, great revival. Also, vintage afternoon teas, very, very popular, and even for, for weddings. But um, my lecture goes through the whole history, right from 5,000 years of tea drinking from the Chinese, right through tea dances, through, through the history of scones, and all the tea time treats that we enjoy. It's incredible that something so small, just a social engagement, can actually become something that helps emancipate women. And it, it makes me, th me think of the Tupperware parties that started in the 1950s Absolutely in America that got right. women yes. out there selling things, selling. earning yes. their own money yes. and helped, you know, sort of really kickstart that female emancipation that happened post-war, you know, 50s. And the and, Avon and lady. And the Avon lady, exactly. Yes. That's amazing how those small, seemingly innocuous movements you know, just someone starting to have tea can actually change society in a yes. way. Very, very quickly, because it sounds fascinating, but we don't have that much time. Tell me about your lectures on the European royal families, because this is very travel related. <laughs> and uh, we can't ignore yes. that. You know, we all know so much about the British royal family, even around the world. People are obsessed with the British royal family. But Queen Victoria, through her children and grandchildren, spread tentacles all over Europe and also through King Christian of, of Denmark. Many of the families, including in Greece, the ex-royal family, they're all interrelated. And there are some fascinating stories, even going back to the Vikings. The Danish royal family is one of the very oldest in the world. But there's some lovely, fun, gossipy stories. And in fact, when I was giving this lecture on a cruise recently, we stopped in Oslo and I'd spoken about the, the Norwegian royal family. And the next day, one of the passengers came up to me and said, Gillian, I've got to thank you. I said, oh, why? He said, because we happened to be walking past Oslo Cathedral. We saw a crowd gathering. And it was thanks to your lecture we realised that it was the King of Norway and the Crown Prince because we'd seen photographs of them at your lecture. And had we not come to your lecture, we wouldn't have immediately recognised who it was. So it's good fun and very interesting. What countries have you been to on your cruises? Hawaii, a lot of Europe. I'm due to go to Bali and Australia and uh, South America, St. Petersburg in Russia. It was fascinating to see the changes over 35 years to go to St. Petersburg. And you're about to go on the Middle, Middle East cruise as well? Yes, Caribbean this week. In three months' time, I'll be going off to the Middle East. It's a fun thing to do. And also, the passengers seem to love it. They love the Anne Frank lectures and learning about her legacy. They're very surprised. But also, they love learning about the destinations that they're going to. My last question is about music, because I always think that music and travel go hand in hand. And it's quite difficult for some people to narrow it down to one song. But if you can think of one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what would that song be? A cruise I did, inspired by the great Joanna Lumley, when she did the, the series about the Northern Lights. And that prompted me and a friend to actually immediately book a cruise to northern Nor Norway in search of the Northern Lights. And the captain, it was a, a small sort of ferry come cruise ship that was servicing really isolated Norwegian communities in the depths of winter that were cut off from the rest of the rest of the country. So you can imagine when we sailed into these little ports, the whole village would come out and welcome us. The captain would announce if there were northern lights, because you, you cannot never guarantee it. And then the second night we were on the ship, ladies and gentlemen, we have northern lights. Please go up on the deck and look to the starboard side. And I had it already prepared that on my iPod at the time, I had downloaded Holt's Planet Suites. So I dressed up in about six layers, put all my clothes and gloves and scarf and everything, went up on the deck, put my headphones on. And as we watched the northern lights from the deck of the ship, I had... Mars from Holt's Planet Suite blaring 
into my ears. And that was a, a really sort of sensory moment. And I'll, I'll actually never forget it. Thank you so much, Gillian, especially for that incredible insight into Anne Frank's ongoing legacy around the world. The Big Travel Podcast will be back next week with more fascinating tales of travel. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.